You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Now, if I were to ask you, what do you think is the greatest threat to the Christian church today, how would you answer? Just think about it for a moment. Please don't yell it out loud. The greatest threat to the Christian church in our world today, in our culture, but also in the the world as a whole. You might say, well, it's, it's this sort of general atheistic culture that seems to increasingly oppose God around us. That might be it. Or you may say, it's the rampant immorality of our world. We see it through media, we see it in movies, music, on television, all these things. Maybe that's what you think is the greatest threat. Or you you may say it's the increasing hostility to Christians around the world, especially in places where the church is heavily persecuted. Or you may say, you know, it's it's certainly politics. The church is too influenced by the left. Or the church is too influenced by the right. Those are Probably some, some common answers. And while I think all of those are valid concerns and all those things are, are worth talking about, I, I'd submit to you that none of them are the greatest threat against God's people today. If you notice, all of those threats come from outside the church. But what I would submit to you and what I think Peter would agree with is that the greatest threats to the church today don't come from without, but from within. From deep down in our own hearts. And now, now, where do I find this in First Peter? I said I think Peter agrees with me. Now, I don't. I, I admit I don't have a, a single verse where where Peter declares this. But as we consider the pattern of Peter's writing, even so far, right, we're three weeks into this, we start to see it come to the, the surface. Remember, Peter's writing to a Christian, to Christians in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. There's not state-sanctioned persecution from Rome yet. That's still years down the line. But the pressure is starting to to increase. There is a general rejection of this view that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. There There is certainly this cultural promotion of immorality. So there, there are a number, Pastor Clint drew this out last week, a number of similarities between Peter's Gentile Christian audience, former pagans who came to Christ, and our audience today, with us today. And so if that's true, we, we got to say, okay, how does Peter then combat this? What's his strategy? And what he doesn't do is he doesn't say, here's the bullet point list, church, of all the threats from the outside that you need to fight against. That's, that's not his strategy. Instead, what is he doing? He is constantly reminding the church of who they are at their core. Right? He goes to the inside of their identity. What he's been doing, if you've noticed, is Peter has been helping us guard against spiritual amnesia. Forgetting who we are in Christ. Because... If we forget this identity, if we forget who we are as exiles, as he told us in chapter 1, born again to a living hope, rooted in Jesus, 
called to be holy, if we forget this identity, then all of those other external identities that are competing will creep into our hearts. So as we begin chapter 2 this morning, Peter is continuing to show us what it means to, to live out this identity from within. Here's the difference. What he's doing now in these next few verses, in these 12 verses, is he's starting to apply it to the corporate community. This is a passage about the church as a whole. He's saying, here's the truths of your salvation, chapter 1. You've been born again. Here's your identity. Now here's what that means for you, church. Here's what the church must be. And this is really a turning point in the letter, just to sort of give you an overview. Okay, so, so far in chapter 1, he's laid that foundation. You're elect exiles. You're chosen by God, and this world is not your home. Heaven is your home. You're born again to a living hope. So you're looking forward to this day when you'll be reunited with Christ. And that is to inform the way you live now. And then here, in chapter 2, 1 through 12, he's saying, here's who you are as a community. Here's what the church must be. And this is essential because next week, chapter 2, verse 13, we'll start to see the turn and Peter will begin applying these truths to very specific settings that the church is facing. He applies it to interactions with the world. What does it mean to, to submit to governing authorities? What does it mean for you as a husband? What does it mean for you as a wife? What does it mean when you're persecuted by others? Chapter 5, what does it mean to pastor in this sort of context? But before we get to that, we have this foundation laid for the church. It's like... Um, it's sort of like those airplane safety instructions for oxygen masks that none of you pay attention to, right? I, I, last time I flew, just pray that I don't lose my voice during this thing, right? This might be the shortest sermon ever. Uh, last time I flew, that you know, I was trying to watch a movie and then the video popped up. You know, here's what you do. And what do they say? If you're traveling with somebody else who's, you know, you know, that you're taking care of, if those oxygen masks pop down, what are you supposed to do first? You're supposed to secure your own, right? And then you take care of the child's oxygen mask. That's what this is for the church. Peter is saying, you need to be healthy. You need to be rooted in Christ. You need to be growing. Here's what you must be so that you can hold out the hope of the gospel in this increasingly hostile culture. This is the oxygen mask for the church so we can bring the oxygen of the gospel to those around us. So what must the church be? That's the question we're asking this morning. And Peter shows us here that the church must be a growing community centered on Christ, living on mission in the world. Do you hear that? Three things. Every healthy church must be, first, a growing community, verses 1 through 3. Second, a Christ-centered community, verses 4 through 8. And third, a, a missional community, a community on mission, verses 9 through 12. So let's jump right in. Number one, the church must be a growing community. Now, Pastor Clint mentioned last week, when you see therefore, you're supposed to see what it's there for. The same is true with so, and that's how chapter 2 begins. So, or therefore, in light of everything Peter's just said about pursuing holiness and being born again by the word, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, Long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
So Peter's concern here as he begins chapter 2, and remember, these headings weren't there, these splittings, right? Peter wasn't like, okay, chapter 1's over now, and now I'm starting chapter 2. This is our division. So it's a continuation of thought. But his concern here is that Christians would grow up into salvation, meaning we would continually grow in holiness, in love, in obedience. When you become a Christian, you don't cross the finish line, right? It's not the end of the race, it's the beginning. And so, as God's people were to pursue lifelong spiritual growth and maturity. And how do we do it? Well, we're going to go out of order here. Okay, we're going to start with, with verse 3, because at the core of Peter's argument about how to do this, how to put off evil and, and put on holiness, the core of his argument is in verse 3. He quotes Psalm 34. Peter loves Psalm 34. He does it again in the next passage, which is a psalm of thankfulness to God from King David because of a radical deliverance. It's, it's a great parallel to 1 Peter. And Psalm 34, 8 says, we just read it as our call to worship, and we just sang it, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In Psalm 34, it's a command. Right? David's tasted the goodness of the Lord, and he's calling others, listen, you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. Here, Peter switches it a little bit. You notice that? He says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, if you are a Christian, here's how you will live. You're going to put off evil, and you're going to long for spiritual growth and maturity. Now, I think this imagery of tasting is so important for us because what it does is it positions spiritual growth at the level of experience. And that's something I think we miss often as we think about spiritual growth and discipleship in the church today. David and Peter don't say, if you read that the Lord is good. That's not what they say, right? Now, I love to read. And I love reading about the goodness of the Lord. All sorts of great books out there on this, but that's not what they say. They don't, they don't say, if you've taken a class, a systematic theology class, on the goodness of the Lord, right? Though those are great too. They don't, they don't say, if you have a good doctrinal statement about the goodness of the Lord. All of those are wonderful things, but they're not the same as tasting, Right? Tasting brings it to the level of experience. Think about that. Would you rather read about a delicious meal or would you rather partake in one? I started thinking about that. Some of you are like culinary people. And you're like, I love reading about food. But the only reason you read about food is to prepare you to eat the food, right? Whether it's a cookbook or whether it's Yelp or whatever it is. Right? You'd much rather taste and experience the meal than just talk about it. So this imagery of, of tasting puts it on the, on the realm of experience for us. Have you experienced the goodness of God in salvation? It gets beyond a mental ascent of doctrine, though that's so important, and gets down to the heart level of knowing the goodness of the Lord who has saved you. And that is first and foremost to spiritual growth. That is first and foremost to, to putting off sin. Now, how do we do that? Right? How do we taste the goodness of the Lord? 
Well, I think David is helpful for us if we go back to Psalm 34, verse 8. Right after this statement, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What does he say? He says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. That's how you taste. You take refuge in Christ by faith. Tasting the goodness of the Lord means experiencing salvation through faith. And if we have tasted his goodness, this is Peter's argument, we must put away wickedness. So if we start with verse 3 at the core, if we've tasted the goodness of the Lord, we go back to verse 1, we must put off, put away wickedness. Now notice this list is is related to how we interact with others. You see that? He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. This is to the church. That doesn't mean we get to treat non-believers with malice. Right? That's not what it means. But the focus here is relationships in the church. And these things are hindrances to our growth. Because they're contrary to the goodness of the Lord that we've tasted. So let's just go through this, this list briefly. First is malice, if you have the ESV, which is the version we use. It's this general word for evil that emphasizes hostility and an intention to harm others. Peter says that shouldn't describe the believer. Our desire should be the goodness of others. Nor should we be people of deceit and hypocrisy. Those two are are related. We're not to speak lies, but only truth. We're We're not to pretend something we're something that we're not and hold out double standards, right? That's, that's hypocrisy. We're to put away envy, which is rooted in coveting and jealousy because someone has something that we want. And we don't slander others. We don't speak evil of others to bring them harm. Ephesians 4.2 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We are to put off these things, put away these things, because we have tasted the goodness of the Lord. And so our attitudes and the way we interact with others should reflect, hey, we want to put off any hindrance to our growth as a community. We want to love one another as Christ has loved us. We want to give grace to one another. Now, this leads us to ask ourselves, In what way am I harboring these evils in my heart? Because you could do a lot of things with this list. The first thing we're tempted to do, and I'll just be honest, this is me when I hear a list like that. I go, yeah, you know what? I know someone just like that, right? Or you start thinking, you know, I don't do malicious things. I don't say malicious words. Remember what the scripture is doing. It's bringing it down to the level of experience goes deeper. Maybe you don't do malicious things. Maybe you're kind in your words. But are you harboring these things in your heart? And the question is not are you. The question is, the question is in what ways are you harboring these things in your heart? And then ask, okay, in what ways are these things making their way out of my heart into my life and the way I speak to others and the way I, why I interact We're to put them away. And instead of living lives of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and slander, we're to long for pure spiritual milk. That's the first part of verse 2. 
like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Now, there's your Mother's Day connection. <clears throat> it's officially a Mother's Day sermon now. Great. Now, this imagery of, of spiritual milk continues Peter's new birth illustration from chapter 1. If you've been with us, you remember that. We're born again, right? A newborn baby needs its mother's milk to survive. No baby formula in the first century, right? So if mom happens to be gone, and some of you dads, you're like, I've been there, right? Mom's gone, maybe longer than expected. Baby gets hungry. You know what you can't do with baby? You can't reason with the baby, right, with a newborn. Just chill. She'll be back in a little little bit. He's like, oh, okay, good. I'm glad that's settled. Nope, it's not going to work. You can't substitute the meal. You don't have formula. You can't say, you know what? We've got frozen chicken nuggets. They're delicious, right? Baby's still a few years out from enjoying those things. As you get older, you can teach your kids to sort of skip a meal, right? Oh, we're going to be home late. You know, we've got soccer practice or whatever, so just hold off. And they might grumble and complain a little bit, but they can, they can make it. That's not the way it works with newborns. They want one thing, and when they're hungry, they let you know. They long for it. Only one thing will satisfy. And Peter says, that's the kind of longing, that's the kind of desire, and that's the kind of craving God's people should have for spiritual growth through the word of God. That replaces what you put off. This is what you put on. This is what you pursue. Now, how do we know that this refers to the Word of God? I think that's a good question because it says the pure spiritual milk. Well, we have to consider the context. This is is what Peter has been talking about, right? That's how chapter 1 ends, talking about the living and abiding Word of God, the gospel that was preached to you in verses 23 through 25. Then he says, so therefore, in light of that, you put off these things, you put away evil, and you pursue spiritual growth through the word, like an infant longs for mother's milk. Essentially, what Peter's saying here is, where there is new birth, there is deep longing for God's word. You can't have one without the other. A growing Christian, a growing church, must long for the word of God. And notice, too, that it's the pure word. I love that Peter adds that. No additives. Right? You don't add something to this to make it better. You don't water it down. If you do, it loses its nourishment. Long for it. This is why we preach the way we do. Nothing fancy. Read the text. Explain the text. Apply the text. You don't need to hear my opinions on things. You don't need to hear Clint's opinions on things. We need to hear God's word on things. Right? We need the pure spiritual milk of God's word. But this also has personal applications as well. Right? What words would you use to describe your relationship with God's word? Your time in God's word? Can you say, I long for it? Can you say, I crave it? Can you say, I desire it? If I go, if I go long, so too long without meditating on the truths of God, his very words to us, I feel hungry and empty inside. I need the word because I need him. Right? Or, and this is a temptation for all of us, 
Have you grown apathetic, indifferent, and detached from the word of God? You know, you know the greatest enemy for us tasting the goodness of God through his word is, it's the prioritization of our time. One study asked the question, what percentage of people spend 30 minutes or more each day engaging in the following activities? None of this will surprise you. None of these are wrong, right? Email, 70%, more than 30 minutes. TV, 59%, more than 30 minutes. Housework, 55%. Hobbies, 42%. Facebook, 25%. And the list goes on and on and on. Do you know how much Bible you could read if you spent 30 minutes a day in God's Word? You could read the New Testament in 40 days. You could read the Old Testament in 120 days. I'm no mathematician, but I believe that's 160 days, whole Bible, right? And the takeaway from this study, listen to this, says, while none of these types of media, these things they listed, are inherently evil, they do tend to take up our time and energy in ways we don't anticipate. As you look at the list of activities, which are true of you, and what areas could you cut back in order to make more time for Bible reading and prayer? It's remarkable what we would be able to accomplish if we consistently set aside even just a small amount of time each day for focused Bible reading. Imagine how our lives personally and the church corporately would be impacted by Christians reading the Bible over the next year. Now, I, I realize some of you are like me. You look at words a lot for work, right? So the idea of then adding more words you're staring at a screen, the idea of reading, you just want to sort of turn your brain off. I felt this way a few months ago, just a personal anecdote, and I had a hard time reading God's Word, right? Because I'm reading all the time, and I'm reading the Bible all the time, to, whether it's to teach or what, but I was, it, was, it wasn't making it to my heart. So you know what I did? I took the ESV app, and I went to the audio version, and I started listening to it. Maybe you feel like spiritually dull, and you need a jump start, you need a change. Listen to the Bible. It's free. We have a, a wealth of resources to intake God's word and taste and see his goodness. And you know what was great about it? Kristen Getty, the Irish hymn writer, reads it. So now I always hear the Bible in a cool Irish accent, right? But the Lord used that to sort of jumpstart my heart as I was taking in God's word. Right? We must prioritize God's word. We must long for it if we are to grow spiritually. Paul puts it this way to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we have to grow spiritually. How are we going to do that? We who have tasted the goodness of the Lord. We're going to put away wickedness and we must long for God's word to grow. That's number one. Number two, we must be a Christ-centered community. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter moves on to, to a new illustration now. He's pulling from Isaiah, and from Psalm 118, 
to describe the, the foundation of the people of God. And you can really sum up Peter's words here with this. Christ is the, the foundation of the church. More specifically, he's the cornerstone. He's that first stone to ensure the stability. He's like the foundation of the foundation. Peter also says he's a living stone, meaning the foundation of the church is not a dead historical figure, but the living and resurrected and ascended Christ. He is alive now. He is reigning now. He's chosen by God and precious to him. God's plan A to build his church, to build his people, has always been his beloved, crucified, risen, and ascended and reigning son, Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. Now, I think this is really important place to, to point out something. Peter is not the foundation of the church. And I, this is really important because there has been uh, thousands of years misunderstanding of this, particularly the Roman Catholic understanding of who Peter is. So if we go to, to Matthew 16, we read this. Simon Peter replied to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a wonderful passage. But often what happens is this passage is used to say, okay, Peter is the rock. He's the foundation of the church, and thus, here's how the thinking goes. He is thus the first pope, right? The pontiff, the father. And so he is the first in a succession of popes who have authority. That's the foundation. Now, we don't have the scope to do a deep dive in Matthew 16. But if you continue reading in Matthew 16, it's important to say that in the very next, see that the next passage, right after Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, he rebukes Peter for opposing Jesus' death, and he calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. So if Peter's the foundation, he's not a very good one. And I think Peter would agree, right? Instead, Peter, so here's, here's what Matthew 16 in a nutshell means. Peter and the other apostles were foundational only by virtue of their confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? That's the foundation. If Peter were the first pope, right, if he, this was something being established, this would be, in 1 Peter chapter 2, this would be where he would declare it. But what does he say? He doesn't mention anything about himself. Christ is the foundation. He's the living stone. He's the cornerstone. And what is Christ doing? He is building up his church with other stones. And what are those other stones? It's you and I, Christians. We are the building. Verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. The implications of this are huge for us as a church. We, we are the spiritual house. We are the new temple built upon Jesus Christ. One of the obvious ones is this means that the church is not a building, but a people. You don't go to church. Now, if you say that, we know what you mean. We're not going to correct you. But you notice we call this the gathering, right? This, this isn't the church. This is a gym. Did you know that? Basketball hoop right there. There's a hole in the wall behind me, right? 
The church is not a building, but a people. See, in the Old Testament, the temple was the dwelling place of God, right? This place you would go to, God's presence on earth. But the repeated theme of the New Testament is that Christians are corporately built up. They are the temple of God. They are the place where God's spirit dwells. Whether they meet in a gym or a beautiful cathedral or in someone's living room. Ephesians 2.22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. It means a church is not a building, but a people. It also means that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Is what he says in verse 6. You can imagine the comfort this would be to being a Christian in Asia Minor in the mid-first century. Peter's audience. Being a Christian was increasingly shameful in the world's eyes. And you know what shame is? Shame is one of those things that's easy to experience. All of us experience it, but very hard to define. It's a feeling of uncleanliness. Because of something you've done, something that's been done to you, or because of a social status. Just feeling dirty. And here, Peter, quoting Isaiah, says, whoever believes in him, whoever comes to him, will not be put to shame. When we come to Christ, we join a community of faith where shame dies. The world will ridicule us, but Christ will honor us. Verse 7. That means when we're here in a church, in a local church, we're going to be tempted to hide our sin struggles, right? But Christ has washed us clean. He has despised the shame so that we have no reason to hide. If Jesus is central in the church, then this will be true of a spiritual community. It'll be a place where shame dies. I have no reason to fear what you think of me, I don't have to worry about you knowing that I'm a sinner, knowing about my struggles, because that shouldn't surprise you, because all of us are sinners. That's why we're here. That's our commonality. It's in Christ our Savior, the one who despised the shame for us. Likewise, I don't turn my nose up in pride in a Christ-centered community at my fellow Christians when I see them struggle. When I see them battle with sins or, or under the weight of suffering, I say, brother, sister, me too. Let's go to Jesus together. That is a Christ-centered community. Let's continually go to Jesus, our cornerstone, together. He will honor us, verse 7. A Christ-centered church is a place where the gospel is so clearly declared in words, but not just words but also displayed in an attitude that the natural result is a safe place of honesty about our struggles, humility in our failings, and unity around the cross, and lots and lots and lots of patience, right? You saw it on the sign when you came in here. We want to promise you three things, gospel, safety, time. That is a Christ-centered community. Likewise, Christ is the cornerstone means we should not expect to be welcomed by this world. You see that Peter tells us that Jesus is a stumbling block to those who reject him. 
And here's the logic. If, if Jesus is a stumbling block, and we're built upon him as the cornerstone, we too should expect opposition as a church, right? Just as Christ experienced opposition. I read a heartbreaking article this week about a group of churches that was once prominent around the globe and is now crumbling. And I, it really broke my heart. I hate hearing uh, of churches falling apart, right? The church is the hope of the world. But in this article, the assessment from one of the, from one of the authors was that this church prioritized cultural relevance and influence over reverence for Christ in his word. That was the assessment. And eventually, the thing crumbles because what happens? Christ is taken out as the foundation and something else is inserted in. And here's the reality. It's simply not cool to be a biblically faithful church. There's no way around it. One anonymous participant who had experienced that church wrote, sadly, most of my friends who sought to be part of cool Christianity have walked away from God. I'm probably in the most boring church I've ever been part of. I wonder if his pastor read that. But have never felt more loved as a part of a church family had a solid teaching and grown the most in my faith as a result of it. Do you, do you see the lesson? If you build the foundation of the church upon cultural relevance, upon being liked, upon being welcomed by the world, or anything other than Christ, you'll actually lose the opportunity to be genuinely relevant with Christ to a watching world. Brett McCracken writes, once we embrace the inevitable awkwardness, discomfort, and cost of Christian discipleship, we won't be surprised by challenges at church. We'll stick with the local church, even when it's hard, and thus we'll have a better chance to grow. Once we embrace the uncool but beautiful reality of the local church, our faith will likely become more gritty and sustainable. That is a Christ-centered community that is willing to stand out, willing to be opposed by the watching world for the sake of the watching world. Right? So we must be a church that is growing and we must be a church that is centered on Christ, a Christ-centered community. And then third and finally, we must be a community on mission. I'm going to make it. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter, great preacher, right? Lots of illustrations and imagery. He gives us more imagery to help us understand our communal identity. Chosen race and holy nation, right? We're God's people, not by anything we've done, but by his sovereign grace. Just as Israel was chosen by God to, to bless the surrounding nations, so we, the church, the Israel of God, are chosen by him. We're to be holy, and our identity in Christ as the church is greater than any other identity we have in this life. Whether it's national, ethnic, familiar, or otherwise. doesn't mean those things don't matter, 
It means they're inferior to our identity in Christ as the church. But then he calls us a royal priesthood. And this is what I want to focus on. What does that mean, a royal priesthood? Well, in the Old Testament, what did the priests do? They brought the sacrifices into the tabernacle for worship. Now, the church, remember we just saw that, is the dwelling place of God. We're the living stones filled with the Spirit. The altar where the sacrifices were made, where atonement was made, is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He made atonement with his blood on the cross. So then, that's, here's the question. Who are the priests? Peter says, you, church. You are a royal priesthood. And we're royal because we have bowed the knee in submission to King Jesus. This doctrine in history has been called the priesthood of all believers. And it is a precious doctrine. A precious truth. Just as Israel was to mediate God's blessing to surrounding nations, so we, church, as priests of God, have a a mission to spread the good news of Jesus in this world of need of him. I'm not the priest. Clint's not the priest. We are the priests, right? It doesn't mean being a pastor doesn't matter. It doesn't mean there's differences in, in lady and in elders, those are important things that the New Testament works out. But the emphasis, I think we so often forget this, is the ministry of the church is ours collectively. The mission of the church is ours collectively. So how do we do this? And this is how Peter ends. He gives us two ways. We walk in this priesthood to bless the world around us. First, we declare the gospel of Jesus Christ And then secondly, we display a life transformed by Christ. Declare and display. If you say, what is my responsibility as a priest? You can sum it up in those two things. Look at verse 9. We declare, or the ESV says, proclaim Christ. The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now the gospel literally means good news, right? It's news, which means if it's news, it must be shared verbally. You can be a very, very nice Christian neighbor. And you should be, by the way, be a good neighbor. But being a kind neighbor will not proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. It won't do it. You'll build credibility, maybe. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But this is something to be proclaimed. Practically, this means we should be, as Christians, ready to share the gospel. We should be conversant with the gospel. What is, what is this gospel? What are these excellencies? We can go on and on about it, but let me just try and sum this, these excellencies up in a minute. God is the holy creator. He made everything, including you and me. Yet we rebelled against him. We were supposed to live in joyful fellowship in obedience with him for eternity, but we rebelled. And God, who is just, will bring just judgment against sinners. But in his grace, he sent his son Jesus, who reversed the curse of our rebellion by living a sinless life that we couldn't live and dying a sinner's death that we deserve to die in our place. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, 
so that all who believe in him will not perish, but will be restored to joyous fellowship for which we were created. Trust in Christ today. That's the excellencies of the gospel in some. So we should be, church, ready to proclaim the excellencies to those around us. This means thinking like a, a missionary where you live, work, and play. It means becoming, think of it like a language, become fluent in the gospel. Not just can I share it in, in, in a minute, that's important. If the Lord gives you that opportunity, you should pray for those. But can I apply it to the lives of people in my church? Can I apply it to the struggles of my neighbor as they're suffering? Become so fluent in the gospel and the excellencies of Christ that you're ready to share it naturally. You're ready to say, here's what I've tasted, and I want you to taste it as well. But then secondly, it's not just proclamation. You see that? We must also display a life transformed by Christ. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Here it is, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So he tells us to live a lifestyle of holiness and honor. We're not only declaring Christ with our words, but we're displaying that we've been transformed by Christ with our lives. And this word for honorable in verse 12 is kalos. And it gets beyond just this moral righteousness, though that's part of it. But I love this word. It emphasizes worth and beauty that's attractive. You see that? It's a goodness and honor that is meant to be attractive to those around us. That's how we're to live. Then Peter attaches this missional goal to it, right? If you live this way, here's the prayer. Unbelievers who think you're crazy for believing that a guy rose from the dead. Unbelievers who think you're crazy for holding to a biblical ethic. They may despise you, but as they see your life and as you declare and display the gospel, they'll be attracted to it. And they may say there's something different about this person. Their life is giving credibility to their words. And maybe they will repent and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, friends, I think this last part is so important and especially true in our culture. We, we live in a, a place where it seems like everyone I meet has a, a version of Christianity in their mind that is not what I read in the Bible. Right? And so I should take opportunities to give that, you know, one-minute gospel presentation if the Lord gives it, I want to be faithful and bold. But the reality is, 99.9% .9 of our declaring and displaying is going to be slow, arduous work. You know, the, you know the favorite illustration in the New Testament for the growing of the kingdom is? Farming. Exciting, right? The, man's, the kingdom of God is like a man who sows the seed and goes to sleep. And it sprouts up here and there and it grows. And Jesus says he knows not how, but he's faithfully sowing the seed. 
Friends, that should describe all of what we've said thus far. That should describe our commitment to spiritual growth. That should describe our commitment to being a a Christ-centered community. And that should describe our mission. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. We should be committed for the long haul. There's this beautiful summary of this from the Apostle Paul in Acts 26. He's in chains before King Agrippa. Just think of this. He's in chains. No freedoms. He eventually dies. And he begins to proclaim excellencies of God to Agrippa. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Right? I love it. Paul, he's getting into his gospel presentation. I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Sort of hear the disdain in his voice. This is Paul's mic drop moment here, verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. You hear what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I'm taking the long game approach. If you believe in the short short term, great. But if you don't, I'm going to keep sharing Christ with you. If you see immediate spiritual growth in the short term, great. But that's usually not how it works. It's long term. If we build a, a, a community centered on Christ in the short term, that's just not how it works. We take the long term approach to spend our lives to be the church that Christ has called us to be. So church family, we must be, we must be a growing community centered on Jesus Christ, living on mission in this world. And so let's, by grace, be committed to this slow, hard, yet rewarding work for the long haul. Let's pray together.